stories been told about a woman uh, who lived in a large apartment building in a big city, and with the building next door being just a few feet away, she could look across the alley into the apartment of another individual's living space. And there she saw a woman that she had never met, but she could see her through the window. She could see her go, and in the afternoon she would sew, and she would read, and spend her time in that window. And after several months had gone by, she noticed that this woman who lived in this apartment right across the way had very dirty windows. And she would say to herself, I wonder why that woman doesn't wash her windows. Those windows look dreadful. But one bright morning, she decided to do some spring house cleaning of her own, which included cleaning her own windows. So she cleaned her own windows, and when she finished, she sat down by that same window where she could see the same woman across the way, sewing and reading. She was, this time though, clearly visible. She said to herself, finally, this woman cleaned those dirty, filthy windows. And then it quickly dawned on her. <laughs> I've been criticizing this woman for her dirty windows, but all along, it was my windows that were dirty. I was looking through my dirty windows that clouded my perspective of her. To King David, the rich man, and Nathan's parable was dirty. As a matter of fact, he was filthy in David's estimation. But through Nathan the prophet, God was cleaning David's windows so that he could now finally see that the dirty man that he was beholding in this parable was none other than himself. He was that man. We continue in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 7. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. So this is the interpretation of the parable. Nathan is giving it to him now. And that interpretation was direct and piercing. Thou art the man. You are the rich man in this parable. You are the man who actually deserves death. It's you. Remember, we asked a question a few weeks ago, who has permission in your life to wound you if necessary? And that's a question that is it's uncomfortable for us, right? We don't like that. I would imagine that it's so uncomfortable that maybe some of us just dismissed it. I just won't do that. I don't live that way, and I'm not particularly fond of anyone speaking into my life that way. So I hear what you're saying, Kenny. That sounds like a really good thing, but no thank you. Well, Nathan wounded David here by saying to him, what God told him to say to David, which was the job of a prophet, was to say what God told them to say. Whether it was popular or not, whether it was comfortable to hear or not, they had to say what God told them to say. Even though David was the king and he was over Nathan, he wasn't over the word of God. Didn't matter how high of a position he held. 
He was not exempt from feeling the full blast of the Word of God, and that he felt. And the reason that this confrontation at this point was so direct and so piercing was because of David's self-righteousness, because of his, his hypocrisy, because of his quickness to condemn and judge this man in the parable while for a year uh, he's been living and hiding or trying to hide and cover the dirty deed that he himself had done. Had the rich man been anyone else other than himself, not only would David had held him to a fourfold restoration about this lamb, but he would have put him to death. Had it been anybody else other than him, this man would have died. So when God confronts us, this is part two, we talked about how he uncovers truth because this is the only way that God deals. This is the only way that God interacts with us. It's truth. God is never going to deal with you on any other level primarily than truth. You say, how do you know that? Well, Psalm 138 verse 2 tells us that there's something that God has magnified above his very name. And you say, what could be higher than the name of God? There is something, his word. So that speaks to the premium, that speaks to the place that God gives his word that shows us how he deals, truth. So when God has to confront us, which is the byproduct of our refusal to confront us and deal with us, he's going to uncover truth that we've been trying to not deal with, right? We talked about that. And then he unmasked us. This is that moment, and we all need these moments. They're, they're not pleasant at all. Uh, they're very, very tough. When God brings you personally to the mirror and says, look, this is you. You thought that, you said that, you did that. This is you. That's tough, but needful, right? Those have been some of the most incredible turning points in my life when I came to the mirror and got honest with God about who I really was and where I really was versus who I thought I was and where I thought I was. But here's the third thing that we see out of the gate, and that is this. When God confronts us, he unabashedly speaks. He unabashedly speaks. Thou art the man. In that statement, no punches were pulled. Nothing was watered down. Direct, piercing, confrontational. Thou art the man. I would imagine that at that moment, David's heart began to accelerate faster and faster, and it would have seemed like time had stopped. Because now he realizes, ah, oh, that's me in the parable. You, you know. I, I, I've been trying for a year to keep this in the dark. I've been covering this up. I've been hiding this. And uh, this is it. This was the moment that God crashed his party. 
But brethren, listen, please. This is the kind of confrontation that we can all struggle with with God. We can struggle with this kind of confrontation when God confronts us like this. This can be very difficult. A direct, no punches pulled, no excuses accepted, rebuke. You're going to have, if you haven't have, I would imagine, at least for those of us who are a little bit older in this life, you've had your thou art the man moment, haven't you? I've had one, I'm sure. I've had a few. Not saying I've ever committed adultery, God forbid I haven't, but it doesn't mean I'm blameless in the sense of being sinless. I've had the moment where God has had to say, you did that. As a reminder, as it relates to our age, we live in this age of Laodicea that we talk about so frequently. This church, Laodicea, is the last of the seven churches that Christ speaks about in Revelation chapter 3 before John is caught up hither in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And this word Laodicea is something that we are familiar with in the sense of it means rights of the people or justice of the people. So this is a church age. This is a, a, a culture or a company of believers who have a zeal and an appetite for political things. They're very zealous about politics. No matter what side of the aisle they land, they are passionate about politics. Did you Hear this from Scott McDonald, who's the executive director of LifeWay Research. He said this, Studies have shown that voting patterns and political affiliation correlate with the type of church and amount of church involvement someone has. I can say amen to that. Do you know when the dust cleared on all the stuff that we Uh, endured and went through as a nation, as a church with COVID and uh, a very contentious campaign uh, during all that, when the dust cleared, there were people who at one point said wonderful things about Midtown. They love this church. Midtown's great. Midtown's awesome. Midtown's this. Midtown's that. But when the dust cleared and all that stuff, They left. You know why? Because we didn't lean too heavy enough this way or we didn't lean too heavy enough this way. So they wanted to go and find a church that leans the way that they lean politically. Now, as it relates to unabashed speech, I want you to hear the Lord's commentary on the church that has a political zeal, Laodicea. You might want to hear it. I might want to hear it. Revelation 3.16, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's what he thinks about a church that has a political zeal. Historically, the neighboring city of Heropolis had hot spring water, which had medicinal benefits. But by the time it 
flowed or got to Laodicea, it lost some of its heat and some of its medicinal values, which made the water undrinkable and useless. Colossae was a neighboring city. We saw that when we went through Colossians, and it had cool, life-giving, refreshing water to drink. So Jesus' unabashed commentary on the political church then and now that it is so nauseating to him that it compels him to vomit. See, this is a church that will, listen, it will passionately follow the campaign and this upcoming election. It will passionately follow that. And it'll be very outspoken about whatever side of the aisle it lands on. And then be okay with the fact that you know, some, the, the church says, well, we believe that all roads ultimately lead to God as long as people believe in God. <laughs> That's this church. That's Laodicea. When you consider King David at this time, you could say that he was Laodicean. Politically speaking, he was handling his business as the king of the nation. The geographical footprint of the nation was expanding, and economically, the nation was doing exceptionally well. Things were going wonderful for Israel, politically speaking. But spiritually speaking, David had not become an atheist. But listen, he was not the man who was after God's own heart either. You see that? Like Laodicea, he was lukewarm. And like Laodicea, he was miserable. We said earlier that we can struggle with God when he confronts us unabashedly about what he's displeased with in our lives. And here's one of the reasons that that is or can be so problematic for us. Okay, Whether you are a teenager or the parent of one, or could be the parent of one, uh, this will be critical for all of us to hear. Uh, starting with me. This will be very, very critical because I'm, I'm going to tell you what, what we're about to look at right now is what I believe to be a trap that so many people have placed themselves in. And if this is reflective of your walk and how you live, I... I really hurt for you because I know the implications of this. It means that you are stuck and that you cannot and will not move forward until this changes. Here it is. When we refuse to judge ourselves subconsciously, we revoke permission from others to do so, listen, including God. This is not a reality that you want. This is not good for you. It's not good for me. This is when we say, listen, 
I know that this is in my life. I know that this, this, this thought pattern, this habit, this whatever this thing is, that is grieving the Spirit of God, that is displeasing the Lord, I, I know it. But listen, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to talk about it. And by the way, you can't either. No one has permission to go there. I haven't given myself permission to go there, so you don't have permission to go there. That's really dangerous. But here's what we overlook in that. Listen very carefully. God does not require your permission or mine to confront us. God did not get David's permission to send Nathan and say, thou art the man. As a matter of fact, if David had it his way, that wasn't going to happen, was it? So, hey, David, what do you think? I'm aware of some things going on. I'm thinking about sending Nathan to have a conversation about it. When would be a good time for that to happen for you? No. Let me show you some examples of how unabashed God can be when it comes to addressing his people. Unabashed. Israel. Look at Ezekiel 16, 25, and 26. I mean, just heads up. This is, there is nothing inappropriate or improper about the Word of God, but this is very sober, okay? Just heads up. Thou hast built thy high place at every head of the way, and hast made thy beauty to be aboard, and hast opened thy feet to every one that passed by and multiplied thy whoredoms. Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors, great of flesh, and hast increased thy whoredoms to provoke me to anger. How's that? for unabashed speech. And has opened thy feet to everyone that passed by and multiplied thy whoredoms. God was likening His people spiritually to that of a whore who would spread her legs to anybody that passed by. Unabashed. Peter. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Here is Peter who <laughs> had given place to the devil. And it was evident because here's Peter who stood face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and rebuked him. And Jesus pulled no punches. And so let me tell you where that's coming from. He blasted him. 
about the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 33, they weren't his people, but this is another example of an unabashed confrontation, if you would. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? One of the problems that we have with the Laodicean church is the Laodicean church is at war with God over the Bible. So the church at Laodicea, it's on a mission to avoid things like we're talking about right now. You really don't want to say that to people on a Sunday morning. I mean, for crying out loud, you've got teenagers here. I didn't know they were going to be here, by the way. <laughs> but had I known, I don't think it would have changed anything. Like, oh, that just sounds so harsh. Like, let, let's, let's, so here, let me tell you what goes down in so many churches today. As much time is spent on what we're not going to cover in the Bible, as much time is spent as what we are going to cover. Oh, no, we, we can't teach that. We, we can't say that. We, this is why it gets so difficult when God confronts us like this. Because God says, I'm sorry, I didn't get that memo. <laughs> what I can tell you is you're my child, and I'm displeased with your life right now, and I'm going to let you know that. How about the church at Corinth? For ye are yet carnal. You're spiritually immature. You're babies. You're childish. For whereas there's among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? You walk, you live, you think, you talk just like the lost people in this dark city, Corinth. You're just like them. So given that God will confront us unabashedly, I believe we need to understand something. Okay? And I say we, I'm talking about me too, please. Uh, I am, anytime I'm teaching, I'm sitting in one of these seats. Oh, Lori's sitting there, so I would be sitting over there. Okay? Uh, trust me, the Holy Spirit, uh, I have to bathe in this before it gets to you. <laughs> and that's not always a comfortable bath. <laughs> But here it is. A key component of repentance is hearing and receiving hard truth. That's a key component of repentance. This is when you actually know that someone is really ready to repent or not. Can they hear? Can they receive hard truth? Can they, can they handle that? When they are offended, argumentative, because in their opinion, the truth that was spoken to them was too hurtful, even though they have crossed lines in God's Word, they're not ready to move forward. I mean, they, they have crossed lines. They have grieved the Spirit of God. I mean, it, I mean they have just thrown God's Word out the window. But yet, 
they're a victim now. Why? Well, because that truth that you spoke, it hurt me. So their emotional hurt weighs more than pleasing God according to his word. Wow. That's deep. That's very deep. We're going to see how the king responded, but trust me, this was, at this point, this was the biggest test of his heart to date. He's the king. I mean, he could have, I mean, just with a word had Nathan done away with. Could have did it. Or does he repent? We're going to see. But through Nathan, God continued by addressing David's ungratefulness. Look at verse 7 again. He goes on to say, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. So here God reminded David of not just all that he had done for him, but that he was willing to do more. Isn't that something? What did God do for him? God said, I anointed thee king over Israel. He had promoted David. Remember the Bible tells us promotion comes from where? It comes from the Lord. He had promoted him. God took David from the sheep coat to the throne. What a promotion. God said, I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. He protected David. Without God's divine protection, David does not escape the wrath of Saul. At one point, David was certain he was a dead man, that he was going to die by the hand of Saul. And God says, no, I have a plan for you. God said, and I gave thee thy master's house, thy master's wives, and to thy bosom. He provided for David. There is no evidence that David took Saul's wife or he took Saul's concubine whatsoever, but the way the process worked was whenever you had a new king, he was entitled to whatever the previous king had. His property, his harem, all of that was entitled to his successor. So this is what the Bible is speaking of here. God said, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. He prospered David. Remember earlier in our study of 2 Samuel, when David first begins to reign, he's only reigning over Judah, not over the whole nation, his tribe in Judah. But now, through God's blessing, his prosperous blessings of David, he came to rule over the whole kingdom. And as great as all that was, God said, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Can you hear this? Can I hear this? I would ask you to even circle this after you fill in this blank. But dark living is the fruit of an ungrateful heart. Dark living is the fruit of an ungrateful heart. It absolutely is. 
Listen, let me, let me just implore you. I mean, let me implore you. Ungratefulness ought to frighten you. It ought to frighten you. If you study your Bible, I'll just, I'll just even give you the, you can get right to it. There's a lot of places, but just read Romans chapter 1. And see the connection between ungratefulness and darkness. Ungratefulness ought to frighten you because of where it goes. It goes to darkness. When you are ungrateful, what you are before God is, listen, you are accusatory. What you're saying is, is you just haven't been good enough to me for me to be grateful. So why don't you get busy giving me more, doing more for me, and then I'll see about showing you some gratefulness. (laughs) You want to talk about uh, displeasing the Lord. You serve him a plate of ungratefulness, and you have done that. Not only have you displeased him, but you have actually provoked him to righteous anger. Because at the moment you can accuse God of anything other than who he is, you've lied. And God has a problem with that. Let me tell you how good God is, guys. I I could stand here this morning, I could go down the line, but Last Sunday, this was a, one of those moments that just, thank you, Lord. I, I have thanked God a hundred times, maybe, since last Sunday. But we're driving on I-35. We're going home last week, and we're in the middle lane. I'm driving, and there's a car to our left, and there's a car to our right. And this car to our right is here, and I'm about right here. And this car just starts mer- merging over. Merging. I'm penned in. I've got my wife and my children in the car. And I am trying to keep the car between this car merging and this car here that just won't get by fast enough. By the grace of God, we avoided catastrophe. Thank you. You know what the flesh does in the moment? Whew, great. And then before the end of the day, the flesh rushes to, okay, what's next? How quickly we forget. Like God owed me that protection, right? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Okay, we continue. We're almost done. Wherefore, as thou despise the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight, thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. God was not only displeased with what David had done, but he was grieved 
And that comes across in his tone. This is direct. This is heavy. God spoke about four things he did for David and spoke about one thing that he was willing to do, a whole lot more. But now here in verse 9, he spoke of four things that David did. What a, and it shows a contrast between God's goodness and David's darkness. Wherefore as thou despise the commandment of the Lord, David violated God's word. We know for a fact that he shattered at least four of the Ten Commandments. Murder, adultery, theft, and covetousness. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. He victimized Uriah. This is dark. And has taken his wife to be thy wife. He vanquished Uriah's wife. David's conquering of Uriah's wife was warlike. He had her husband killed in battle and then claimed her as his own. Vanquished. Conquered. And has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. He vilified Uriah. If it wasn't enough to order the death of Uriah, <laughs> uh, David debased or degraded Uriah by having him die by the hand of the enemy. An enemy that had degraded and debased Israel, if you remember, back in chapter 10 when they shaved half their beards off and cut half their skirts off. So now David sees this same people group in the life of Uriah, one of his mighty men. And you talk about putting your business on Front Street. <laughs> Nathan is giving David this data. I don't know if God informed Nathan beforehand exactly what he was going to say or if it was all coming in real time, but, but David is exposed. When God confronts us, finally, you know what he does? He unveils us. He unveils us. We talked last week about when God confronts us, he unmasks us, and that is true. But when we're talking about unveiling, we're talking about the public exposure of something. For all to see, as Nathan was walking through each detailed point about what David did, it had to hit David like a freight train. It's out. It's not in the dark anymore. The curtain has been pulled back. Wow. And God spoke to this in verse 12, which we're going to get more into next week. Would you look at verse 12? For thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. No, we're, we're bringing all this to the light. I mean, think about it. <laughs> Not just for David, and the nation of Israel at that time, but, but this is one of the reasons that you can have complete confidence in the Word of God. God chose to preserve this in His Word. 
for all to see. Let me tell you, let me just give you a sober, sober warning and one final point and I will be done. Let me tell you one of the things that, and I, I'm grateful for this, um, one of the things that God teaches you along the way is uh, you're always going to learn what to do and you're going to learn what not to do. And I've had the unfortunate and fortunate experience here and there over the years to, to sit in a church service when the church is informed, when the curtains are pulled back, that a pastor has been unfaithful to his wife. I've endured a few of those. He's exposed. Where this man stood before people and taught great things and was respected, admired, adored. And God says, let me show you who he really is and how he's really been living. I'm, I say fortunate because death would be better than that. I've shared this here and there. Some of you may have heard it. This may be the first time for some of you, and, and some of you will be like, I don't care. That's just you. No problem. We're good. But having gone through a few of those, I remember having a conversation with the Lord while spending time in God's Word, and I said, Lord, and let me tell you, I know that He heard me, and I have no doubt that He will honor this. Lord, take my life before I could ever do that. You know what I believe? And I have been tempted. I know you're like, really, you? I know. I know. I'm nothing. I, I get it. Bro, you're laughing. Like, yeah, any, any little dig against me, you're like the first one to laugh, man. <laughs> That's my dude right there, man. That's my guy. I'm getting, listen, I, I know I'm nothing. Right? I know that. You know what I believe? I really believe if I physically tried to go through with adultery, I could never do it. I think God would find a way to end my life before I actually went through with it. There's no doubt in my mind. So, <laughs> the math gets really simple. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> it's not worth that. I'm going to close and I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Jeff to come up and wrap us up. But God often ensures that our private sowings are reaped publicly. Would you agree with that? God says, this thing that you've kept in the dark, this thing you've been hiding, it's uh, the reaping will be for all to see. Brothers and sisters, let me just go back to something we talked about last night, and I promise I will be done. You're like, you keep saying that. I promise you I'm really close this time. Stay sensitive 
to the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God lets you know that the Father is not pleased, deal with it. Deal with it. Lord, thank You for Your Word. This is a heavy, sober block of Scripture, but Lord, it is one that we need, which is why You preserved it for us. Let us not be dismissive. Let us be receptive of it. In Jesus' name, amen.